This is a Scream Queen production. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is So Dead Podcast. Happy True Crime Tuesday, Deadheads. And happy fall, guys. It's finally here, our favorite season. Halloween is coming. And as soon as I'm done recording this episode, I am going to go decorate for Halloween. Yes, at the beginning. Eh, it's the middle of September. I usually try to do it around September 1st, but now that I've got the Festival of Oddities that first week of September, it's probably going to always be mid-September before we get going. Anyway, you guys don't need to know all that. Um, summer vacation is over. The kids are back in school whatever that looks like this year. Uh, My son's a senior, and he just started his senior year online, as I'm sure a lot of your children are also doing online schooling this year. So that's that's new. Summer vacations, so those weren't really a thing this year for a lot of us because of the whole, you know, pandemic going on. We've never really done summer vacation in our house anyway. I always had to work. My husband always had to work. Three out of our four kids played baseball growing up. So that just consumed all of our weekends every summer for many, many years. You know, we try to do like a weekend away or maybe even just a beach day to Lake Michigan, but nothing that I would call a vacation. Back in the day though, summer vacations were a whole thing. The family would pack up and hit the wide open road for weeks, sometimes months at a time. They'd go up to the family cabin if they had one or on cross-country adventures. And it was easier, you know, many, many moons ago because mom was home anyways. Once the kids were done with school, dad would take a couple weeks off or a month off during the summer and everybody would just go. Such was the case with the Jaeger family of Farmington. Farmington is a suburb of Detroit that is primarily inhabited by the families of Motor City's auto plants. Bill Yeager was a dye design dye design engineer. I don't know why that was hard for me to say. Um, a dye design engineer at McDonough Engineering in Detroit. So basically, he designed and created the dyes that were used to make tools and vehicle parts. He and his wife, Marietta, had five children, three boys and two girls. In 1973, their eldest, Dan, was 16, and their youngest, Susie, was 7 years old. That summer was going to be the family's first big adventure. Susie was finally old enough to go camping, so they were able to plan a family vacation for the first time. They spent almost a year preparing for their Adventure to the Wild Wild West. They bought two new motorcycles, new tents, and new hiking boots for the whole family. Uh, For weeks before they left, the tents were set up in the backyard so that the kids could play in them and try to sleep in them and get used to them. Uh, Although little Susie never quite made it through the whole night in a tent. She was the baby in the family, so she was attached to her mama, and she was just a shy, timid little girl who was afraid of the dark and couldn't sleep without her favorite teddy bear and stuffed reindeer. So she'd bundle all up in the tent with the best intentions of sleeping outside with her big brothers and sister, and then she would go running to mom at some point during the night, unable to sleep in the tent. On June 17, 1973, the Yeagers left their Farmington home in a mustard-colored Chevy van with a red camper hitched to the back. I can just picture it. So 70s. So 70s. They visited Colorado and Wyoming before their first official stop at Missouri Headwaters State Park near Three Forks, Montana. They were on their way to Glacier National Park in northwest Montana, and this was just kind of a stop along the way. Headwaters State Park marks the official start of the Missouri River and is a national landmark because the Lewis and Clark Expedition camped there in 1805. That was your history lesson for the day. You're welcome. The 532-acre park is surrounded by water, wilderness, and mountains. Uh, even today, it's kind of more of a rustic campground. There, you know, it's for hunting, fishing, hiking, real camping. 
Not that glamping shit, which is honestly the only kind of camping I would be interested in, but I know a lot of you are more outdoorsy than I am. And the Jaegers, they were outdoorsy. They arrived at the park on Saturday, June 23rd, where they met Marietta's parents who'd been traveling the country in an RV since retiring the year before, so their party of seven became a big party of nine. This was more than just a vacation for Bill Yeager, though. He was tired of the city life, and he dreamed of leaving his big city job in Detroit and relocating to Montana. So it was as much a scouting trip as an actual vacation. The family only intended to stay at Headwaters for a few days. Saturday, they set up camp. Sunday, they hiked, they fished, they climbed up mountains and through caverns probably made s'mores and told ghost stories. You know, camping shit. Uh, And then that night, around 11, they put the kids to bed with plans for one more day of fun at the park before they moved on to their next destination. It was chilly, so the kids slept in their jeans and their long sleeve shirts. They just took their socks and shoes off, zipped themselves up in their sleeping bags, and went to bed. The four younger children, 14-year-old Frank, 12-year-old Heidi, Nine-year-old Joey and seven-year-old Susie slept in a tent together. Sixteen-year-old Dan and his parents slept in the camper, and Marietta's parents slept in their RV. Around 2 a.m., a train passed in the distance, and the train whistle woke up the girls. So Susie and her big sister Heidi sat up and they talked for a little bit about their plans for the next day and the other things they wanted to do on their vacation, and then they went back to sleep. What they didn't know was that their voices carried through the secluded campground, and a predator lurking nearby heard them. Not a grizzly bear or a wolf or anything else you'd expect to find in the Montana mountains. No, this one was the most dangerous predator of all. At 4 a.m. on Monday, June 25th, 1973, Heidi woke up again, so a couple hours later. It was downright cold in the tent, and there was a breeze, which she noticed was coming from a circular, almost half-moon-shaped hole at the wrong end of the tent, opposite from the unzippable door. And it wasn't a rip or a tear, but a very carefully cut hole right beside Susie's sleeping bag. And Susie was gone. Heidi ran to the camper where her parents were sleeping. She was frantic as she tried to explain to them what was happening, and they didn't understand her at first. You know, they were just waking up, and Marietta's brain would only allow her to jump to logical conclusions at first. Susie must have left the tent to use the bathroom, or maybe got scared and tried to get to her parents in the camper but lost her way. Uh, But none of that really made sense because Susie was afraid of the dark and it was pitch black at their rustic campsite near the river. She would have woken Heidi up to go with her if she needed to leave the tent. When Bill and Marietta arrived at the kids' tent and saw the hole cut into the side, they knew Susie had been taken. Armed with flashlights, the family began searching for Susie, hoping she was still nearby. All they found was her favorite teddy bear and reindeer lying in the dewy grass a few feet from the tent. She'd taken them with her when she was snatched and held on to them until she couldn't hold on any longer. Bill hopped in the van and raced into town to summon the police. They responded immediately, and when they found the hole in the tent, the stuffed animals on the ground, and a set of footprints leading to an empty parking lot nearby— They called in the FBI. They knew that this was serious. The family wasn't making this up. This wasn't a prank. She didn't take off on her own. It was very clear that someone had taken little Susie. Authorities searched on foot, by horse, by ATV, by plane, by helicopter. They brought in tracking dogs. They dragged the river. They found nothing. Susie, who was four feet tall, 55 pounds, with long brown hair and hazel eyes, had vanished into the night. Her disappearance nagged at local officials. It reminded them of something. Five years earlier, another horrific crime had occurred in their normally peaceful corner of the world. In May of 1968, over 200 Boy Scouts gathered at Headwaters State Park for their annual camporee. Among them was 12-year-old Michael Rainey, the eldest son of Dr. Les Rainey and his wife Harriet, a nurse of Bozeman, Montana. 
Michael's tent, which he shared with several other Boy Scouts, including a boy named Ken Summers, was coincidentally just a couple of yards from where the tent of the Jaeger children would be set up five years later, so essentially in the same spot. Around 5.30 a.m. on the morning of May 5th, Ken woke up to find that the tent had been slashed open. When he tried to wake Michael up, he saw that his friend was covered in blood. He'd been stabbed in the chest and was unconscious. Michael was rushed to St. Vincent's Hospital in Bozeman, where it was discovered that he not only had a punctured lung from being stabbed, but also blunt force trauma to the head. He died two days later on May 7, 1968. At first, police believed a group of local boys might be responsible. Uh, Some kids who weren't Boy Scouts had shown up at the camporee and they were asked to leave. Officials thought that maybe one of the boys had slashed a tent in anger and accidentally stabbed Michael. That sounded nonsensical, but that's how rare violent crime was in that area. It was unthinkable that a child had been purposely murdered. Of course, that theory fell flat when doctors found the head wounds, which the blunt force trauma is actually what killed Michael, not the stab wound. While there were a lot of differences between the Rainey and Jaeger cases, there were also a lot of similarities. The campsites were located in pretty much the same spot. The tents were slashed open in the middle of the night. In Susie's case, she was taken, and in Michael's, he was stabbed and bludgeoned. But in both cases, this happened quietly enough that it didn't wake any of the other children sleeping in the tent. Isn't that crazy? I'm a light sleeper, so I don't understand when things happen and people don't wake up. But that's just crazy to me that whatever this was happened so quietly that it didn't disturb these other children. And they weren't in separate rooms. They were right there in the same space right next to them. So crazy. Michael Rainey's murder went unsolved, and people tried to forget it and move on. Until it happened again a few years later. There weren't many clues in Susie's disappearance either, though, and authorities wanted very much for the two cases to not be connected. Susie's family, who was over 1,500 miles from home, remained at their campsite at Headwaters State Park, anxiously awaiting Susie's return. On July 2nd, a week after Susie disappeared, a man placed a call to the home of a sheriff's deputy. The deputy wasn't home, so the man talked to his wife. He told her that he was the person who'd taken Susie, and he demanded $50,000 for her safe return. To prove that he was telling the truth, he described a minor physical deformity of Susie's. The nail on the index finger of each of her hands was rounded in kind of a hump-like shape, and he knew that. This was something that hadn't been reported in the news because it wasn't a detail that the Jaegers had even thought to mention to police, so nobody knew this. And because of this, authorities believed that the call was legitimate. So the Jaeger family, who was not wealthy by any means, and they just put all of their extra cash into this big vacation, they managed to get the $50,000 together for the ransom, but the man never called back. On July 25th, exactly one month after Susie's disappearance, her family left Montana and returned to their home in Farmington. Once home, they began receiving more false ransom calls and even crank calls. One man called the Jaegers and asked for $60 in exchange for information on Susie's disappearance. Susie's desperate parents made arrangements and dropped the $60 off at the requested destination, which was in Detroit. Why would someone in Detroit know anything about a crime that occurred in Montana? And why would he only ask for $60 when it had been widely publicized that the Jaegers were prepared to pay $50,000 to the previous ransom caller? The reason is because the guy was a crackhead. And the Jaegers knew this, obviously, but on just that little sliver of hope, they played along. Authorities placed a trace on the Jaeger's phone, and when the man called again asking for $140 this time, you know, to make it an even 200 police were able to track him down while he was still on the phone with Bill Jaeger. 28-year-old Marshall Harbin was arrested in a phone booth on Detroit's northwest side and charged with federal extortion. He was indeed a crackhead, and he was held over on $10,000 bond. I wasn't able to find anything else on him aside from his initial arrest, so I don't know what he wound up being sentenced to or what his penalty ended up being, but he was arrested for this. Despite all of this nonsense, the Jaegers kept the phone lines open, just in case. 
In one interview, Marietta said to reporters about her nine-year-old son, Joey, Sometimes I'll tell him to go play with his buddies, but he will come back in and say, In case you want to lay down, Mama, I'll be here to answer the phone. And that just breaks my fucking heart. People were calling the house of this family who's been through unimaginable hell just to say awful things or make false ransom claims to try to get a little money out of them. And on the other end of the phone was a nine-year-old little boy who was missing his sister and worried about his mama. I just, I, I hate people. I, I really do. I hate people so much. <sighs> okay. As the investigation into Susie's disappearance went cold, Marietta tried to shift her focus. She was so consumed with hatred and the desire for revenge that she began to worry about her health and the well-being of her other children. She was obsessed, and she knew it wasn't good for her, so she began to work toward forgiveness of a person or persons that she did not know who'd done God knows what to her little girl. She even began to pray for her daughter's kidnapper, once telling reporters, If he had Susie, I wanted him to be good to her. I tried to think positive thoughts for him, and they were simple, unsophisticated things. Let the weather be good for whatever he's doing today. If he's traveling, may he not have car trouble. Meanwhile, investigators were employing an unorthodox tactic of their own. They began working with FBI Special Agent Patrick Mullaney, who was working on this new crazy theory called criminal profiling. If you've watched the show Mindhunter, yeah, so Patrick Mullaney and another agent by the name of Howard Teton, they actually started that whole thing. So while the main character in Mindhunter is based on real-life FBI agent John Douglas, John Douglas actually worked for Patrick Mullaney. So basically, the Mindhunter's boss the OG Mindhunter, worked this case. In fact, the Jaeger case was the very first case that Mulaney used his criminal profiling technique on. How's that for crazy? So the police and the FBI in Montana turn all of their files over to Patrick Mulaney in the spring of 1974, and he put together a profile for them. He said that the person who took Susie was a young, white male with military training, possibly schizophrenic, who had trouble communicating with women. He kept souvenirs from his victims, possibly jewelry, clothing, or body parts, and either had been or would be arrested for other crimes. Then he got real specific and said the kidnapper would call Marietta Yeager on the first anniversary of Susie's disappearance, which was coming up. And then, after reviewing all of the files of people who'd been questioned and tips that had been called in, he gave authorities in Montana a name. David Gale Meerhofer. It was a name authorities knew well. David Meerhofer was born on June 8, 1949 in Manhattan, Montana, which is a tiny town just about 10 miles southeast of Missouri Headwaters State Park. He grew up in Manhattan, and then he joined the Marines after high school, where he served as a communication specialist in the Vietnam War and rose to the rank of sergeant. After the war, he returned to Manhattan, where he worked as a contractor slash handyman. He first made his way onto police's radar shortly after Susie Yeager disappeared, when a neighbor called in a tip asking authorities to investigate Meerhofer because he was a weird guy which is not really a whole lot to go on, but always, always trust that gut. If it doesn't pan out, it doesn't pan out. But if you see something, say something. And if you think you see something, say something. Let the police decide if it's something or not. Police questioned Meerhofer. He was very open, very willing to do whatever he could to help, and nothing really came of that. He was one of over 1,500 suspects in the case after all. However. He was one of only three suspects in another disappearance that occurred just eight months after the disappearance of Susie Yeager. 19-year-old Sandra Smalligan was David Meerhofer's neighbor. Her Manhattan apartment was just across the street from his. They had even gone out a couple of months prior on a single date in December of 1973. Sandra disappeared after a night out with friends on February 9, 1974. She returned home around midnight from a basketball game, and then both she and her car were gone the next day. 
Manhattan is a small town, as previously stated. Three Forks is a small town. The Gallatin County Sheriff's Department oversaw both of these areas. So the same officers that were still working the Susie Yeager case were now working the Sandra Smolligan case as well. On February 15, 1974, just a few days after Sandra was reported missing, a deputy driving the back roads looking for her vehicle stumbled upon a suspicious scene at an abandoned ranch up in Horseshoe Hills, which is just a horseshoe-shaped range of hills, as its name would suggest, uh, just a few miles north of Manhattan. There were fresh tire tracks in the dirt road, and when the deputy stopped to investigate, he found a pair of women's panties in the grass. So he walked up to the barn, which appeared to be abandoned, and he tried to open the door, but it was nailed shut, and the nails were fresh. I mean, this whole barn was dilapidated and rusty, and then there's these fresh nails holding the door shut. So he he broke in. In the reenactment I watched, he actually kind of like Chuck Norris the door and kicked it in. I don't know if he really did that or if that was just for dramatic effect, but he broke into the barn. He started investigating, and under a bunch of debris and a tarp, he found a vehicle. There was no license plate on the vehicle, but this was a small town where everyone knew everyone, and the deputy recognized the car as Sandra Smolligan's. So he called out the troops and Authorities started about a five-mile-wide search of the property. In a burn barrel on the property, they found what looked like chopped-up, freshly charred human bone and human teeth. So the search intensified, and over an area of about 75 yards wide, square, round, I don't know, a 75-yard area, they found over 1,800 bone fragments. Most of them were very small, but some were big enough that they were able to use dental records to identify the remains as those of Sandra Smolligan. But there were other bones as well, bones that were older, and whatever person or animal those bones belonged to had been dismembered and burned, just like Sandra Smolligan. Locals whispered that they must be the bones of Susie Yeager, but officials denied it. They didn't believe that there was any connection between the two cases. Except for the young local contractor who also showed up at the diner where officers working the case would go for lunch. He would sit at a table near them, listen to their conversations, ask them questions, offer to help. Authorities would have been leery of this man's interest if he were just any old guy off the street, but he wasn't. He was David Meerhofer, who'd already been questioned in both disappearances. So red flags all over the place at this point, right? They asked Meerhofer to take a lie detector test, and he agreed. They questioned him about both cases, and he passed the lie detector. So they asked him if he would consent to questioning under the influence of sodium amytal, or truth serum. Again, he agreed. And again, he passed. The way the sodium amytal questioning works is that a subject is questioned before the truth serum is administered, and then the same questions are asked again after the truth serum. So any deception or attempt at deception is easily spotted. It's easy to pick it out. But David Meerhofer answered all of the questions exactly the same both before and after the truth serum. So even though the folks around town thought he was a weirdo, which does not a criminal make, I'm a weirdo, um, but people thought he was weird, uh, he knew the area well as a lifelong resident, and he had taken a suspicious amount of interest in the investigations, and had been named as a suspect in both cases, it couldn't be him, right? He passed every test that they put him through. That was the only conclusion authorities could come to. So when the original Mindhunter, Patrick Mullaney, declared that David Meerhofer was their guy, local authorities insisted that he wasn't. And instead of focusing on David Meerhofer, they focused on another of Patrick Mullaney's predictions. He believed very strongly that the kidnapper would call Marietta Yeager on the anniversary of Susie's disappearance. And this whole time, we're talking months and months and months, Marietta had essentially been glued to the phone, waiting for a phone call from the man who took Susie. Lots of crank calls, lots of scammers, lots of pieces of shit putting this family through further hell. And during that time, there was just one instance that might have been the actual kidnapper. 
When I tell you that Marietta was glued to the phone, I mean that literally. Well, <laughs> not literally. She didn't like use super glue or anything, but she didn't leave the house at all for the first few months after they came home, ever at all. And then one day, uh, one of the kids was at an after-school activity, and a friend was supposed to pick them up and never showed, and she had to leave the house to go get one of her children. And so she left her oldest son, Dan, in charge of the phones, and sure enough, she walked out the door, and the phone rang. Uh, The man on the other end asked for Susie's mom, and when Dan told him that she wasn't there, uh, he said, you know, she'll be right back, though, and he tried to keep the man on the phone. The man said that he was the person who had taken Susie, and he didn't appreciate the police being called. Like, what? What? You stole a little girl out of a tent in the middle of the night. Of course the police were involved. I'm pretty sure that the Jaegers didn't appreciate you stealing Susie. So nobody really cares what you what you like and what you don't like, buddy. So Dan tried to keep the conversation going, but the man hung up about 10 seconds before Marietta walked back through the door. She was only gone for 10 minutes, and during that 10 minutes... The phone call came in that she had been waiting by the phone for for months. The call was traced to a diner in Wyoming, but when police arrived, there was no one there that might have been the kidnapper, and employees didn't remember seeing anyone use the phone. So all they had was the recording. And it was just, it was so odd. It was so different in tone from all of the other calls that had come in. They believe that that one actually probably was Susie's kidnapper. So now we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of the disappearance of Susie Yeager, and all of the leads have fallen flat. So authorities really lean into this theory that the kidnapper is going to call. They have Marietta do an interview with a national news outlet in which she talks about how she's forgiven Susie's kidnapper, and she prays for him, and how she would like to speak to him, all of this, all of this stuff. And it works. Lo and behold, on June 25th, 1974, at 3.30 a.m. on the dot, the phone rings at the Jaeger house. Marietta answers, and the man on the other end says, Is this Susie's mom? And she said that in that moment, she absolutely knew she was talking to the man who took Susie. It was not a prank. He said, This is the man who took her from you, one year ago to the minute. Now, the family didn't know what time Susie was taken. They just knew it was sometime between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m., so this was new information that she was taken at 3.30. Before Marietta could even respond to the man, he hung up, and she was beside herself. She knew that the call wasn't long enough to be traced, and there had been so much hope hanging on this one thing, and now it was gone. But a few minutes later, the man called back. He was clearly calling to taunt and terrorize her. He asked, so what do you want to talk to me about? And instead of doing what I think most of us would do, she didn't start screaming, you know, where's my child? What'd you do to my daughter, you piece of shit? I'm going to find you and kill everybody you love. That's what I would have done, probably. She didn't do that. She completely flipped the script on him, and she asked him how he was doing and said things like, you know, gosh, the burden of this must be just such a heavy weight on you. I pray for you every day. What can I do to help you through this very difficult time? So instead of it being this combative confrontation, Marietta was kind and peaceful, and she made it all about him and what he needed and how he was doing. She left no space in the conversation for him to taunt or torture her. And she wasn't even being disingenuous. They talked for almost an hour before the man hung up. And by the end of the conversation, he was bawling. So an hour is plenty of time to trace a call, right? Well, it should have been, but there was some sort of system failure at the phone company and the call wasn't able to be traced. So all of that was for nothing. Then along came a Montana rancher to the rescue. We're going to call him John Dutton so that I can make a reference to the show Yellowstone, which I recently binged and I absolutely fucking love. It has one of my favorite quotes of all time. Um, You are the trailer park. I am the tornado. (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry. Sorry. I just, yeah, nope. Anyway. A month after the call made to the Jaeger home, a rancher in Montana was inspecting his land when he noticed that his phone line had been tapped. So he inspected his phone bill, and on it was a long-distance call to Farmington, Michigan that he had not made. Now, Susie's disappearance was huge news in the area, so everyone knew that her family lived in Farmington, Michigan. Good on this guy, I guess, for making that connection. And when the police came and they inspected the phone line, they found tire tracks in this field that no one had any cause to be driving through. And so they asked the man for the names of people who had recently worked for him. And guess what one of those names was? David fucking Meerhofer. David Meerhofer, who they'd once thought was definitely the guy who a super smart FBI profiler had told them was definitely the guy, and who'd been a communications specialist in the Marines, so he definitely knew how to tap phone lines. At this point, the FBI was like, guess what, motherfucker? We know it's you. They took the recording from the call made to the Jaeger home, and they used something called voice print analysis, basically a fingerprint, but with your voice, and compared it to one of their taped interviews with David Meerhofer. It was an exact match. Authorities took the results from the voice print analysis to David's home, and they confronted him. His explanation was that all of the men in his family sounded alike, so they did essentially a vocal lineup. Police gathered David and a bunch of men from his family, set up a recorder, and then called Marietta Yeager and had each man read a line from that recorded call the kidnapper had made on the anniversary. And I mean, like, how traumatic for this poor woman. But she was down to do it if it would lead to Susie. So the second David Meerhofer came on the line, she knew it was him. And the voice print analysis confirmed it. He was the only one that was a match. David continued to insist that he was not responsible for Susie's disappearance, and Marietta continued to speak to him in the kind, forgiving way that she'd gotten so good at doing. So good that David actually agreed to meet with her. So this fucking badass warrior mama bear flew to Montana, and on September 12, 1974, she met David Meerhofer at his attorney's office. And, I mean, she already knew this was the guy, and of course she knew that Susie was probably gone, but the second she looked into David's eyes, she knew 100% that this man had kidnapped and murdered her daughter. She could also tell just by looking at him that he was mentally ill. And remember, one of the many things that Patrick Mullaney had predicted was that Susie's abductor might be schizophrenic. So that would also explain the big mystery in the case of how David Meerhofer had passed both a lie detector test and a truth serum test. Schizophrenics are able to disassociate enough that they are not under stress when subjected to, say, a lie detector or truth serum test. So that can result in a false positive. Or would that be a false negative? Just a false. It can, it can throw the results, basically. At their meeting, Marietta looked Meerhofer in the eye and told him that she knew that he took Susie. He continued to maintain his innocence. After about an hour of going in circles, Meerhofer's attorney called it a draw and he ended the meeting. Marietta actually shook David Meerhofer's hand and told him she would pray for him. And so this was on September 12th, and from here, things got real wild real quick. Police put David Meerhofer under 24-hour surveillance, but somehow he gave them the slip. On September 24th, 12 days after his meeting with Marietta Yeager, Meerhofer went into his house and never came back out. He was just gone. And magically, while he was missing, the Yeagers got a phone call from a man named Mr. Travis from Salt Lake City, who confessed that he had kidnapped Susie and that the Yeagers needed to leave poor David Meerhofer alone. Marietta, of course, recognized David Meerhofer's voice, and so throughout this phone call, she continued to call him David, and no matter how much he tried to convince her that he was this Mr. Travis, she just kept saying, okay, David, talk to me, David, tell me this, and made sure to just keep calling him David. The man told her that he could prove to her that he had Susie and that she was still alive, and then he proceeded to play an audio recording of a little girl 
insisting that she was Susie and that she was fine. That mother fucker. But what's so scary about that is that to get that recording, that meant there was another little girl in his presence, and that's terrifying. But one thing he didn't know when he set up this recording was that Susie didn't call Marietta mommy the way the little girl on the tape did. She always called her mama, and that was how Marietta knew that it wasn't Susie. With all of his deceptions failing him so hard, Mirhofer got upset, said, you'll never see your little girl alive again, and hung up the phone. Marietta called the FBI to tell them about the call, which, of course, had been recorded. They traced it to a Salt Lake City motel room, but by the time they arrived, the man that had rented the room was gone. Apparently, David thought that his little ruse had gone well, because he felt confident enough to return home to Manhattan on September 27th, at which point he was immediately arrested. Authorities got a search warrant, and they went to his apartment looking for trophies, because remember that FBI profiler, who had been right about literally everything else, said that the killer probably kept trophies from his victims, either clothing or jewelry or body parts. And sure as shit, in the freezer, they found multiple packages wrapped in butcher's paper with the initials SS on them. They opened one of the packages, which naturally contained the mutilated hand of Sandra Smolligan, or SS. The hand was clutching two of her severed fingers in its palm. So... Officials certainly weren't surprised by this, but they were very upset, as I think anyone would be in that situation. On September 28, 1974, authorities sat David Meerhofer and his attorney down and basically said, Look, we found your body part collection. You're not getting out of this. We know that you killed Sandra. We know that you killed Susie. We can ask for the death penalty, but Susie's mom is like this saint on earth, and she doesn't want you put to death. So if you confess, we will agree to life in prison instead of the death penalty. And what David's attorney said next absolutely shocked authorities. He told them that David was ready to confess, but not to two murders, to four David Gale Meerhofer committed his first murder in 1967 when he was still a senior in high school. On March 19, 1967, David was coming down from the hills, armed with a 22 rifle, when he saw two young boys playing on a bridge. One of the boys he didn't recognize, but the other he did. 13-year-old Bernard Pullman, a wiry towhead with glasses and freckles, was the younger brother of Dale Pullman, one of David Meerhofer's classmates. Dale and David had recently gotten into a fight. I don't know if it was a physical fight or a verbal fight, but some kind of fight. And David wanted revenge. So as he watched Dale's little brother climb one of the pillars of the bridge, he aimed his twenty-two and shot, hitting the boy in the side. Bernard Pullman turned to his friend, 12-year-old Richard Hatzel, grabbed his side and said, I'm shot, before falling into the water. Hatzel ran for help, but it was nearly a month before Bernard's body was found. Initially, it was presumed that he had drowned, but when an autopsy was performed, it was discovered that he had indeed been shot. And it was unclear whether he'd been murdered or shot by a stray bullet. Police kind of thought that he'd probably been shot intentionally, but again, this was rural Montana in the 60s. Bullets were flying here, there, and everywhere, and this was not a town where crimes and murders occurred, so for someone to just shoot and kill a little boy randomly was, was way out of anything that they expected to happen in their little part of Montana. So the case kind of just fell to the wayside. You know, was it an accident? Was it murder? They weren't sure. Never did they suspect that Bernard had been killed by his older brother's high school nemesis. I mean, how, how ridiculous. David Meerhofer committed his second murder a year later, when he was just 18. He had been kicked out of the local Boy Scouts pack, and he decided he needed revenge on them too. So when the annual Camporee came to the park just 10 minutes from his house in May of 1968, he decided he was going to get somebody to show the Boy Scouts, to embarrass them. I'm, I'm not real sure there. He told authorities that he 
opened this tent and I saw this little boy and I couldn't force myself to take him, I guess, so I stabbed him in the back. That little boy, of course, was 12-year-old Michael Rainey, whose murder was still unsolved. Now, here's where this gets interesting. Police asked David if he hit Michael in the head after stabbing him, and he was adamant that he didn't hit him. He said that he stabbed him one time and then ran back to his truck. Michael's tentmates didn't wake up during any of this, but a scout leader several tents over woke up during the night because he thought he heard someone calling for help. He checked on the kids in the tent nearest him, but he did not go over to the tent that Michael Rainey was in. So if Michael was able to call for help loud enough for someone at the other end of the camp to hear him, but his own tentmates didn't hear him, and then the man accused of killing him admitted to stabbing him but fiercely denied hitting him in the head, which the blunt force trauma was the injury that actually killed him, I don't, I don't know. I feel like something fishy's going on here. I mean, why would he deny hitting him unless he just didn't remember? Or maybe he didn't do that part. Who knows? That's me. Okay, I'll take off my tinfoil hat now. I don't know. This one just seems really weird to me. Mirhofer's third murder was that of little Susie Yeager in June of 1973 when David was 24. For this one, he gave absolutely no motive. He told authorities that he'd heard the girls talking and decided to take one of them. So here's something that's really interesting to me. Um, 1968 to 1973, there were no murders. That's a five-year span. That was the five years that David was over in Vietnam. He comes home and gets right back into killing, and the first place he commits a new crime is right at the scene of his last crime. And we already know from, you know, his phone calls to the Jaeger house on the anniversary, he's very dramatic, and he likes, you know, tradition, and he likes to kind of bask in his evil. So you have to think that he was probably in that spot to kind of relive his attack on Michael Rainey, and then he hears these two little girls talking, and he decides he's going to take one of them. So he waited until they fell back asleep, he cut open the tent, and he pulled Susie out. He choked her into unconsciousness and then carried her back to his truck and took her out to the abandoned ranch where her remains would later be found. He undressed her and attempted to sexually assault her, but when she fought back, he choked her and killed her. He then used his hunting knife to dismember her body, he put her head down an outhouse hole and then burned the rest of her remains before scattering them about the property. The fourth and final murder was eight months later, the murder of 19-year-old Sandra Smolligan in February of 1974 while David was still just 24. Once again, his motive was revenge. He and Sandra had gone out on that one date back in December of 73, and she turned him down for a second date. She was not into him. So on the night of February 9th, he watched her return home from a night out with friends, and he waited a couple of hours until she was asleep before he broke into her apartment. His intention was to kidnap her. He choked her, and he covered her mouth with duct tape, and then while he was packing some of her clothes to take with them, so apparently he was planning to keep her for a while, she actually suffocated to death because he had inadvertently covered her nose with the duct tape as well as her mouth. So she was already dead when he carried her to his car. He took her out to the same abandoned ranch where he'd killed Susie, and he used his hunting knife and a handsaw to dismember her body, then burned the pieces and scattered them around the ranch. Authorities then proceeded to question Mirhofer about other unsolved murders and disappearances from the area, but he insisted that he hadn't killed anyone else. Following his confession, Mirhofer was returned to his cell. He was already scheduled for a court date the following week to enter pleas in the Jaeger and Smolligan murders, and now there were two new murders to deal with. But there wouldn't be time for any of that. Because just four hours after his confession, in the early morning hours of Sunday, September 29, 1974, 25-year-old David Gale Meerhofer was found hanging from his standard-issue jailhouse towel, one of the few items that he had in his cell. The coroner ruled it a suicide and closed the book on the Meerhofer murders. Now, I did find some articles that kind of questioned the details surrounding the suicide, but I don't really want to talk about any of that because, honestly, 
if someone did kill him, good. I don't care. Good riddance. Fuck you. What I do want to talk about is Marietta Yeager, because this woman, after living in an absolute nightmare for over a year, when she found out that David Meerhofer had taken his own life, she reached out to his mother to offer condolences. She wanted her to know that she had forgiven him, and the two women have met, hugged, cried together, and accompanied one another to their children's graves, which are both in Montana. Marietta told ABC, Together, we were able to grieve as mothers who had lost their children. Like, I I just cannot. I can't wrap my head around it. We all hope that, you know, we would have the grace and the ability to be forgiving and... I just, no, I cannot wrap my head around any of that. It's amazing. But that's not all, folks. Marietta Yeager went on to become an advocate for the family members of murder victims and an advocate against the death penalty. She once said, Loved ones, wrenched from our lives by violent crime, deserve more beautiful, noble, and honorable memorials than premeditated, state-sanctioned killings. The death penalty only creates more victims and more grieving families. By becoming that which we deplore, people who kill people, we insult the sacred memory of all of our precious victims. In 1987, 14 years after she lost her daughter, Marietta lost another of the great loves of her life, her husband Bill. In 1998, on the 25th anniversary of Susie's death, Marietta traveled back to Three Forks, where she met and fell in love with a man named Bob Lane. She has since moved away from Michigan and is living out her golden years on a sprawling Montana ranch. And that is the tragic, terrifying death of Farmington's Susie Yeager, the little girl murdered by the very first serial killer to ever be profiled by the original Mindhunter. And the story of Susie's badass mama who chose love over hate and used that power to help bring her daughter's murderer to justice. Thank you for coming to my dead talk. My main sources for this episode were... I would... <laughs> I wouldn't call it a source. I'll call it more an inspiration. Uh, Georgia actually covered this case a really long time ago on My Favorite Murder, and I love them. I love MFM, love Karen and Georgia, but they will be the first ones to tell you to never use their stories as source material. So it's where I got the idea, but I didn't use any of that information for my actual story. Love you guys, though. Uh, I did get a lot of good information from Season 5, Episode 11 of a show called The FBI Files, the episode Dark Woods. The thing that really pissed me off about that is that they used a different name for David Meerhofer. I can't remember his last... They used the name David, but his last name, it started with an M, but it was something... I don't remember. Masterson or something like that. Why are you protecting him? They used all of the victims' real names... And then he got an alias, and that really annoyed me. But honestly, for this one, the bulk of my information came from old newspapers. I was elbows deep in those 1970s newspapers for this one. Uh, you can find a full list of the sources for this week's episode on the SoDead website. And now, it is time for me to answer a listener question. This one came from Shelly, and she said, If you had a chance to interview a serial killer, would you? If so, who would you choose and why? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would. Uh, I don't know that I'd ever want to be pen pals with a serial killer, you know, or strike up a friendship as crime-obsessed women or authors or both sometimes do. That That's not my style. But I think that if I could, like, hop in a time machine and go sit in a room across from H.H. Holmes and look into his face and ask him questions and watch that mind work as he figured out how to fool me and charm me and trick me like he did to everyone, uh, yeah, I would definitely do that if I could. So the last time we talked, I was just a few days away from the Festival of Oddities. And now it's been almost a couple of weeks, which is super important 
because I've almost, I'm just a few days away from that 14-day window of having to worry about, you know, COVID exposure. We did a fabulous job. I'm not, I'm so pleased with how things went. There was a crowd, but I never felt that it was crowded. Um, everyone that was inside the museum wore masks. The museum manager told me she actually only had to turn two people away that walked right past all the signs that said mask, 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 and tried to get in anyways, and she had to, to turn them away because they didn't have masks. But, um, you know, outside, there was always fresh air, beautiful day, super windy. So I'm, you know, in my brain, I'm like, yay, those spiky little COVID germs can't stick to anything. Um, Masks were not required outside when social distancing was possible. So, you know, there were people without masks, there were people with masks, but everyone was keeping their distance. There was hand sanitizer everywhere. Lots of cleanliness and social distancing and masking going on. So I was really, really pleased with how things went. But... I'm still a worrier, and so for, like, the two weeks after, I've just kind of been a nervous wreck sitting here like, please, please, please just let this all have gone as well as it looked like it went. Because we can't stay locked up in our houses forever. We can't. But every social interaction is a risk, and the the risk there has just been weighing really heavy on me, and I've only got a few days left to go before I can relax and move on to my next thing that I want to stress out about. While we're on the subject of the festival, if you follow me on Facebook, uh, you have probably already seen this. I posted it a couple days after the festival on all of my social media pages. Well, all of my Facebook pages. That's really where I'm the most active because I'm old, right? But for those of you who may not have seen it, I do want to address this just the one time, and I'm going to try to keep it short. It probably, I probably won't though, so I apologize. If you're done listening to the murder talk, just goodbye. I love you. See you in a couple weeks. But for those of you interested in my ramblings, here it goes. The Festival of Oddities is two years old now. So the first festival was in 2019. Obviously, the second one was just a couple weeks ago. The idea for the festival came from the party that I held to celebrate Haunted Lansing's release in 2018. So the Turner Dodge House in Lansing, which is a historical mansion that's kind of got rumors of being haunted, and it does have some dark history attached to it. It is a public uh, government-owned event facility at this point, and I've been taking the Demented Mitten Tours there for a few years. I've done some other events with them. I started an event called the Ghostbusters Academy for Kids, where the Lansing Ghostbusters came, brought their Ecto-1. We told the kids ghost stories and sent them on a scavenger hunt. It was just this really fun kind of event for kids. I put that together and did that for the house, Um, you know, gave my time didn't ask for any money, did that for free for fun. I participated in their ghost stories at the Turner Dodge for a couple of years. I took tours into the house for three years. So I was really kind of already helping to build the house's reputation as this, you know, the people that like the dark history and the paranormal, this is your place in Lansing that you want to go. So when Haunted Lansing was getting ready to come out, I rented out the house and we had a big release party and we had a couple food trucks and we had some vendors and of course the book. I was signing copies of the book and it just went so well. It was this beautiful, weird, wacky little event and I knew that it was something that could be bigger and that was where the idea for the festival came from. So we started planning the festival in June of 2019 was when we got the okay from the city to use the Turner Dodge for that purpose. Now, I'm not going to go into a ton of detail here. I will just say that the house manager at Turner Dodge, um, not the easiest person to work with. We had some pretty awful experiences. And if you guys remember, right as the festival was approaching last year, I had my accident and broke my arm. So I was injured. I was in so much pain. I was under a ton of pressure. I'd never held an event before. You know, there was all of this. And then the woman that runs the Turner Dodge house was awful to me, awful to my vendors. So it was just a lot of drama. But 
the festival. The day came. It was beautiful. It was perfect. So many people came. This was before the Rona, so we weren't worried about too many people in one place. Uh, The only thing that didn't go smoothly was admitting people inside the Turner Dodge, which the house staff had control of that. That was their choice. That was their thing. They were taking the money. They were supposed to control the number of people they let in at one time, and they didn't do that. So, I will admit that, you know, the house got a little bogged down, but that was entirely the fault of the Turner Dodge staff because that was the one part of the festival they were in charge of. Anyway, that aside, went beautifully. I was so excited. And despite all of the the issues, I wanted to continue the festival. I'm from Lansing. I wanted to keep it in Lansing. I thought it was just this great thing for the community to do something different. And the Turner Dodge was like, "Mm, no, thanks. Um, They gave two reasons for not wanting to continue the festival. One of them was because they did not want the house to be associated with the paranormal anymore. They felt that I was sullying the house's reputation by turning it into a paranormal hotspot. I thought I was bringing attention from a whole new crowd and bringing them a bunch of money and helping them up their revenue. They saw it differently. But then they also said that the festival was too big. It was too big. There was too many people. The house couldn't support an event like that. So I went back and forth a little bit with them. And then I just said, you know what? I'm not going to argue with you. Fine. I was very fortunate to have a beautiful, beautiful venue offered. The If you were there this year, you know the Courthouse Square Museum in Charlotte. It's amazing. The staff is amazing. It's bigger. The whole town kind of got involved, and that'll be done on a bigger scale next year when we're able to hopefully get back to kind of business as usual and not this COVID living bullshit. But I, w- I was still sad because I had to take the festival out of Lansing, and that was the whole point was that I wanted it in Lansing. But yeah, so we move on. We're doing it in Charlotte. That's our permanent home now, Labor Day weekend, every year. Awesome, awesome, great. We love it. And then a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago now, I saw that there is a new festival. It's being billed as a new and unique festival. That's that's important to keep mind of. At the Turner Dodge, that is a celebration of weird and creepy art paranormal investigators and paranormal authors with food trucks and a photo booth. If you guys went to a Festival of Oddities year one, you know that that's my exact festival. My exact one. The one they said they didn't want and they are doing it. Not only are they doing it, but the man that is putting it on, his name is Jerry Jodlowski. He runs the How To Halloween convention in Lansing every year. He's also a small business owner in the area. He was a vendor at my festival. He was someone I considered a friend. The whole day he was, this is amazing. Look what you've done. This is so great. You should be so proud. He talked to my mom about how she should be so proud of me. And then he went and fucking stole my festival at the venue that told me I couldn't have it there anymore. You guys, I was livid. I cried. I hate crying. I usually only cry when I'm angry, and I was so angry. I cried for like a whole weekend. I just couldn't believe he was doing this to me. I asked him, like, what the fuck, dude? And his answer was basically, you moved your festival to another city. Yes, I did, but I had to, and you know why. I went to the Turner Dodge and asked them how they could justify the discrimination. They gave me this this bullshit, oh, his festival's not going to be that big. Yes, his festival is going to be that big. He doesn't do small things. He was touting that he was going to have over 100 vendors. I only had 34, maybe? Maybe. Tops. So just, just... He's an asshole. They're assholes. Everybody involved is an asshole. Bottom line, there's an event exactly like a Festival of Oddities coming to the Turner Dodge House where the Festival of Oddities began in 2021. I'm not going to share the name of it. I'm not going to help promote it. But I am going to ask you guys, if you love me, don't go. Please, don't give them your business. Don't give the Turner Dodge your business. They participate in discrimination. Don't give Jerry Jodlowski your business. He has a reputation for stealing ideas from 
women. His how-to Halloween festival stole it from a woman. His creepy car show stole it from a woman. And this new festival stole it from a woman who happens to be me after pretending to be my friend. In conclusion, fuck that guy and don't support him or his festivals. Thank you. Okay, I feel better now. I feel like I just like exercised a demon. We're not going to talk about this anymore. I might shoot you a little reminder next year not to go as the event's getting ready to come. But aside from that, I'm done. I don't have time for it. I've got too much going on. Festival next year, going to be incredible. Podcast, projects, all of the things. Very excited. And of course, thank you guys so much for supporting me through all of it because without you, they're just... Wouldn't be a reason to keep doing it. Um, Thank you guys for joining me today. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, and YouTube at Podcast. Please check out the Patreon page for ways to support the show financially, which you can find that at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And be sure to visit sodadpodcast.com for all of your SoDead merch. As always, you can email me your feedback and story ideas to sodadpodcast at gmail.com. A new episode is coming your way in a couple of weeks. If you need something to listen to between now and then, be sure to check out The Serial Killer Chronicles, my first SoDead miniseries, if you haven't yet, or and or join the Patreon party as a $5 and up patron to unlock all of the bonus episodes that you never knew existed. Stay safe. Stay sane. And until next time, keep shining, you magnificent what-the-fucks. Bye.